There are about 90,000 existing dams in the U.S. that don't produce energy today. They exist for the purposes of flood control, or navigation, water supply. They represent a really interesting opportunity to add new hydropower to the grid, leveraging a piece of existing water infrastructure and where that project needs investment anyway, again, because a lot of this water infrastructure is quite old and is in need of upgrade as well. You are listening to the Siemens Energy Podcast Series. The energy sector is undergoing an unprecedented transformation, presenting both challenges and opportunities. The demand for energy is increasing worldwide, and at the same time, we must combat the effects of climate change and reduce CO2 emissions. On each episode, we bring you conversations with some of the world's cutting-edge thought leaders in energy and related subjects. Our goal is to help you understand energy, the challenges we face today, and what the future holds. Subscribe and be sure to check out our website for more resources. Now, here's your moderator, Amy Pemple. Hello, today's guest is Gia Schneider, CEO and co-founder of Natel Energy. Natel Energy's mission is to restore rivers while generating reliable, renewable energy. Welcome, Gia, and thank you for joining us today. I'm hoping you can start out by just telling us a little bit about your background in energy. Hi, Amy. Thank you very much. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here on this podcast with you, and thanks as well to Siemens Energy for making this all possible. So my background in energy is really more on the investment and finance side. So I've had a longstanding interest kind of going all the way back to university at MIT, and, and really a lot of the interest in energy was sparked by an early awareness of climate change as an issue and how important transitioning our energy system is to tackling climate change. But it became pretty clear to me that to understand a little bit of how to move the needle, it was good to understand what drives investments in energy. And so coming out of school, I went to work for Accenture as part of their utility practice, then had the good fortune to go and work at Constellation Energy, one of the energy merchant companies in the U.S. And then after Constellation, I went to work at Credit Suisse to help start the energy desk at Credit Suisse in the early 2000s. That was an interesting stint. We basically built up the energy desk. And then when Lehman happened in 2007, we helped shut it down. And uh, <laughs> and then uh, I, that created the space for me to start uh, Natel in 2009. And that brought me to my next question, which is as founder and CEO, what was the inspiration that led to you forming Natel Energy? Yeah. So as I, as I mentioned, climate change has been a longstanding motivation or, or an awareness of climate change and the importance of tackling climate change has been something that has been kind of central to as far back as I can remember, all the way back actually to early childhood. My And it really comes from my father. My father was very focused on climate change as an issue of concern. And a couple of things kind of came together in into Natel. So one is climate change. Another is we spent a lot of time outside on rivers and in water growing up just for recreation. And that really inspired a deep and abiding love of the outdoors and of rivers in particular. Climate change is water change. Hydropower is this interesting conundrum in the sense that it's the world's largest source of renewable energy today. Been around for 100 years or so. And as we transition to a zero carbon grid, clearly has a really important role to play. But the kind of a challenge of how do we do so in a more sustainable way going forward. And so that challenge of how to make hydro more sustainable and unlock additional growth in hydropower while also 
upgrading and bringing the existing fleet of hydro that, that we have today up to par, if you will, with modern environmental standards. It's kind of this very interesting challenge that what sparked both myself and my co-founder, who's also my brother, to start Natel. And my brother, it kind of worked out really well for us as a team because his background is in mechanical engineering, is very much in machine design and on the technology side. And so we kind of had this interesting, unique opportunity to put together his background in engineering and machine design with mine in investments and business developments. And thus we started Natel. Wonderful. Well, I guess if you're going to invest, it's good to invest in your own company. So that's great. Congratulations. I know it's been a success. It's been around since what, 2009? Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So in some senses, you might say like, what were you thinking starting a you know, <laughs> startup in 2009? It was the right. of a recession, you know, post Lehman. And definitely it was not an easy time for fundraising, I will say. As a result, I would I'd say it also took us a little bit more time to, to get going. A lot of that really, you know, the early funding came from DOE, um, Department of Energy and grants. And that helped us kind of get through the early product development in R&D and got us to like our first project installed. And then that allowed us to start to raise some additional capital for growth. So getting back to something you'd said earlier about hydropower being the largest source of renewable energy, I'm not sure a lot of people understand that or know that. They think of uh, wind and they think of solar because it's certainly front and center in the headlines much of the time. Do you think hydropower is underutilized as a sustainable power source? I would say it's not necessarily underutilized because it is a large part of our renewable energy supply today, but I would say that there it's a bit underestimated in terms of where we can grow the resource and there's less awareness uh, overall, I think, of the importance that the existing hydropower fleet plays in helping to maintain grid reliability and stability in fact, even today, as we've seen increasing deployments of wind and solar, and then, then again, a lack of awareness of like, where are the opportunities for, for new growth? So has the technology and the innovation kept up with the growing need for hydropower? I mean, obviously, my bias, answer to that question will be slightly biased. That uh, right. company, we've been focused very much on the innovation side. And so I, I do think that we have been able to address some of the really core issues. And so maybe just to give a bit more context of where the opportunity is, the two big opportunities in hydropower we see are centered around two buckets, if you will. One bucket is we have this existing fleet, 1.3 terawatts globally, that is, so it's a very large existing fleet installed globally, roughly 100 gigs in the U.S., you know, it's a, it's a fleet that's quite old, in many cases over, you know, several decades old and in, in across the board on average. And what that means is we need to upgrade it. Like we're going to, in order for this fleet to keep producing and being part of our energy supply going forward, we need to upgrade those old assets. And as part of that upgrade, we want to do those upgrades in a way that, again, where we can help move that fleet to be more in line with modern environmental regulations and to take into account what's happening with climate change as, ch as climate change is changing water patterns you know, within our watersheds. We need to think about how do we evolve that existing fleet in the right way. That's one bucket of opportunity. The second bucket is around new build. And in particular, we see there a very interesting area around new build within existing water infrastructure. And to put some numbers around that in the US, there are about 90,000 existing dams in the US that don't produce energy today. They exist for the purposes of flood control, for navigation, water supply, 
they represent a really interesting opportunity to add new hydropower to the grid, leveraging a piece of existing water infrastructure and where that project needs investment anyway, again, because a lot of this water infrastructure is quite old and is in need of upgrade as well. And so those are the two opportunities. So new build and existing non-powered water infrastructure and you know upgrades to the existing fleet. And there's greenfield development opportunity as well, to be clear, I, where we're very focused as, you know, how do we get megawatts in the ne- in the very near term? It's really in those two buckets. So is the U.S. the leading company, uh, country in hydropower, or is it more prevalent in other parts of the world? Uh, the U.S. is definitely one of the leaders. I would say other leaders in hydro, China is definitely, a, you know, China in terms of, of installed capacity has really you know, leaped up the chart, so to speak, on that front. But, you know, that's kind of the case in wind and solar as well. So China's a big uh, player, Brazil, Russia. And then the European Union has a very substantial installed base of existing hydropower concentrated in the Nordic countries and then also within the EU proper within France, Germany, Austria, Italy, and Spain. So you mentioned earlier something about environmental aspects of hydropower. How are you addressing those with regulations and and perhaps mandates and other things? I would assume that hydropower is pretty environmentally friendly. It's water, for goodness sakes. (laughs) So, you know, I think it is. But maybe you can expand on that just a little bit about how what the challenges are there from an environmental standpoint. It is water and and so definitely a renewable resource. And it's a non-consumptive use. So hydro, we're not consuming water in the process of making energy from moving water. We simply pass water through a turbine, just like wind passes through a wind turbine and then you spins the wind turbine to generate energy. Something similar happens in hydropower. The environmental impact around hydro is really more focused on the, you know, hydro does involve putting concrete and, you know, structures in a river, and those structures then can have an impact on and do have an impact on the other species that live within that river, can have an impact on the water flows and how water and sediment and nutrients move within a river. And I think there, our focus from an innovation perspective has been to develop technologies that allow us to maintain what we call river connectivity so that fish and sediment, water, nutrients, et cetera, can move through the river uh, ecosystem, through the watershed, as if the hydropower facility was not there or in a largely unimpaired way. And by doing that, by maintaining river connectivity while also generating energy from that moving water, that we think really allows us to unlock the opportunity of hydropower further with out having an environmental, a negative environmental impact, like fish not being able to swim, for example, upstream or downstream, which definitely can be a pretty major impact in, in certain cases. That's really been our focus. How do we do river connecting hydro, whether that's taking an existing old small hydro facility and upgrading it and updating it with modern turbines that are able to, again, safely pass fish. Or we're looking at new build, again, where we have an existing, say, lock and dam that doesn't produce energy today, and we put power on it, but do so in a way, again, that that allows for connectivity around upstream and downstream around that structure. Can you give us an example of how you would go into an existing hydropower plant and upgrade it? Would be replacing the turbines? Would it be, you know, can you explain how that actually would work and what kind of structure would need to be rebuilt or what's involved in, in getting these ready to work at a higher capacity? For an existing old small hydropower facility, the upgrade is primarily focused around taking out 
old turbines, replacing them with, and again, and to be clear, like we've developed a proprietary new turbine that is designed for safe passage of fish while also you know, having a high performance, high efficiency. And so that's what we're focused on doing. So taking old small hydro, taking replacing the existing turbines with our modern fish safe turbines. And then other upgrades that often are involved are things like upgrading the controls so that we're starting to use modern power electronics and controls to help better dispatch and, and automate the dispatch and operation of the facilities. In some cases, there, there will be maintenance done to the existing concrete that is already there, whether that's in the dam or the powerhouse. But a lot of the focus is within the existing, is within the powerhouse around the turbines, generators, controls. And for new build, are the hydropower plants, the new build plants, much larger than they were in the past, or are they just more efficient? What is the technology that you're offering bringing to the, to the industry as a whole? To give a feel for what we're looking at for new hydro when it comes to existing dams and building new hydro at existing non-power water infrastructure, it's maybe helpful to, to look at the past and kind of understand the arc of hydropower. A hundred years ago, the projects that were built tended to be fairly small, didn't have big dams, tended to be maybe, you know, a couple megawatts in size, maybe to 30, 40 megawatts. Then we had a wave of large dams, large, large hydro projects where we built big dams and big reservoirs. And, and ultimately that, you know, culminated in projects that were as large as, say, the Three Gorges project in China, which is on the order of, I think, 20 gigawatts. So very, very large. What we're focused on is, um, is when we look at the existing non-power water infrastructure, for example, in the U.S., it's navigation structures for, you know, allowing traffic to move on a, uh, up and down a river or for water supply or for flood control. And those structures are low head. They're smaller in nature. They're not, they're, they're not a big, gigantic dam. And so it's a little bit of like going back to the past. And so the projects that we're doing are generally projects that are maybe a couple megawatts to 30 megawatts in size. Generally speaking, the economics are better at the larger end. So generally try to want to do larger projects, which is kind of a common theme across most, most infrastructure. And then the civil works, to give a feel for the civil works, is in general, we think of it almost as like bolting on a powerhouse next to the existing concrete that's already there, the existing you know structure that's already there, whether that's there for flood control, navigation, um, water supply, et cetera. So let me ask you a, a question you may not be expecting, but with hydropower, I'm assuming like other power sources, it's concerned in the digital age about cybersecurity. So as you become more automated and, and more digital tools and software are involved, is that something that you're working on or that you're working with others on in the industry to ensure, prevent against cyber attacks? Yeah. So I would say that in this case, I don't necessarily see us as innovating per se, but rather, you know, definitely taking on board the work that is already, you know, being done to improve cybersecurity as we see more automation at power plants in general. And so I think there, you know, we're, we're able to leverage and use the learning that is already happening across the industry to apply. But, and it's critical, it's absolutely critical because particularly for more distributed small hydro assets, in general, you don't, have, you know, you, you don't have people at your powerhouse 24 seven for a, you know, five megawatt plant or even a 10 megawatt plant. So it's, it's a really critical part of it. The flip side is, is that the risk that these systems pose overall is also low in the event of a cyber attack. Like it's in general, very critical to maintain cybersecurity, but tripping a couple megawatt plant offline is in most cases not going to trigger a, a, a major issue. 
course, there are situations where couple megawatts can make all the difference between having a you know functioning grid or not. But Now, how does the weather impact a hydropower plant in terms of when there are, I mean, as climate change is evolving, we're certainly seeing more natural occurrences with tornadoes and hurricanes and all that sort of thing. But I'm sure you build these to withstand that sort of natural event. But is that something that you're factoring into your strategic planning long term? Very much so. And I would say that our approach has several levels to it. First and foremost, paying attention to dam safety is critical. Like that's a, it's a core foundational element of all water infrastructure and, and in particular hydropower. On that note, in the infrastructure bill that was passed last year, that bill actually had a very substantial amount of funds in it for hydropower in the U.S. to foster these two buckets. So both keep, you know, upgrade the existing fleet and develop new hydro at non-power dams. And a key subset of that funding was focused on dam safety. So it's really a critical, critical part. We pay attention to it. The whole industry pays attention to it. In general, most hydropower facilities have, I'd say, a fairly strong track record around dam safety. And as we see climate changing, one of the key things that we're paying attention to in that FERC, which is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which has jurisdiction over almost all hydropower in the U.S., there's a very core focus there also around understanding what's happening with, for example, probable maximum flood and that you know, at, that hydropower owners are taking the appropriate steps to upgrade their, you know, these projects to withstand those probable floods are increasing in either frequency or duration or magnitude. All of those have impacts on, on that investment that's needed to maintain dam safety. I think the other thing that we're working on directly that we see is a really interesting factor to adjust to climate change for hydropower is to get better at forecasting and understanding what's happening, what we're going to see coming at us with water. And so on that front, we've developed a software solution that takes satellite imagery you know, applies machine learning uh, and combines that with weather data to basically deliver a more accurate forecast of what's going to happen with water flow in any particular location, both within the near term. So looking out, you know, say 10, 14 days, and then looking out seasonally, looking out a number of months. Technology that would have, you know, that's very much enabled by the fact that we have a lot more satellite data that is easily accessible now than we did a number of years, several years ago. And it's also enabled by the fact that with cloud computing and the overall kind of ballooning or development around artificial intelligence, just the ability to, to process all of that imagery in a fast and efficient manner to gain these insights is all, you know, again, enabled by what's, what's happening overall in the AI computing and remote sensing space. So a question I'd like to ask all of our guests is, is there something that you believe about energy that others do not, an opinion that you have that maybe others do not share or that you think are, have not been explored an aspect of the energy transition? I think that it is, I mean, definitely other people in hydro have this view for sure. So I wouldn't say it's unique to me from that perspective, but probably for folks who are less familiar with hydro, there's just less knowledge of how critical hydro already is in maintaining grid reliability in, for example, Europe and parts of the U.S., as we've seen, you know, very large increases in intermittent renewable energy on the grid. So that's one. That's just like, it is the source of balancing. Like, and if you look at the ability of different generation sources to provide everything from frequency regulation to black start to what's called regulation up or down, 
anyhow, these are all ancillary services that can be provided to the grid. Like Hydro has the ability to provide a full stack, almost more so than any other resource, single individual resource that's that we have. In the energy transition, and again, I don't think I'm unique in sharing this view, it's a motivator for me, which is just simply like, it's a, it's a really enormous challenge. And I, I do think that we are at a very interesting pivot point where we've made really amazing and awesome progress at bringing down the cost of wind and solar over the last decade. We're on a similar trajectory for batteries, which is great. Unfortunately, we haven't done such a great job on bending the curve on emissions, total emissions yet. And what that means is we're in this really tricky situation where science indicates we need to try to map a path to net zero in the next 10 to 15 years. And realistically, as a society, we want to do that without compromising grid reliability. Like in general, I think it's pretty, like we're not going, people aren't going to want lower quality of life because the electricity supply is less reliable while we make this transition. And as such, I just, the piece of caution I want to interject is just, that is a a very different problem than the one that we've solved over the last 10 years, where we were focused on this, like trying to get to enough scale so we could bring costs down on wind and solar and start to enable the rollout. That's great. That is a different challenge now as we talk about bringing fossil fuel off the grid for good while maintaining grid reliability and seeing a massive increase in intermittent renewables as part of the energy supply. And again, this is not unique to me, but solving this is, I think I, I do sometimes feel that the there's a popular view that solving that challenge and navigating that is easy. And I think that what we've seen in the last year, just in 2021, starting with like ERCOT, you know, almost going into full blackout that could have taken months to recover from at the beginning of 2021 through the energy price spikes that we are seeing at the end of the year in Europe and the increased reliance on natural gas to fill the gap is just something we need to keep in mind, bottom line. Well, Gia, this has been a fascinating conversation. I really, really appreciate your time. I just want to say, is there a website or something where people can go to learn more about Natel Energy and the work that you're doing? Yeah, it's Natel Energy, N-A-T-E-L energy.com. And there's lots of information there. And we're always happy to share more info. So reach out if you have questions. Absolutely. And I would encourage our listeners to do that because I have now become an advocate for hydropower after today. It's it's really interesting. And and I think you all are doing a, a great job transitioning as, as we all are through the energy microscope that we're all under at the moment to become more sustainable and, and to integrate renewables. And I, so I congratulate you and your company on, on getting involved in that. And I thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it as well. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this episode valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. You can find more information and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at Siemens-Energy.com forward slash podcast. Siemens Energy is providing this podcast as a public service. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Siemens Energy. The views expressed by guests and hosts are their own, and their appearances on this program do not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by Siemens Energy employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the views of Siemens Energy or any of its officials.